Broadcasting live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Women's Telehealth, whose mission is to bring scarce, high-risk maternal fetal medicine services to patients and referring obstetricians in their own community, urban or rural. Visit womenstelehealth.com for more information. Now, here are your hosts, Tanya Mack and C.W. Hall. What is up, Tanya Mack? Well, I've been gone for a couple of weeks, and I so appreciate you covering my bases with my guests while I've been gone, but it's good to see you today. I'm very jealous. You went on a lovely trip to the Northeast. I did. I cooled off from the South. It was lovely. I stayed here and sweat in uh, <laughs> in your absence. Oh, well, somebody's got to hold down the fort. Maybe next time it'll be me. Now, having both of us be in the healthcare technology space, both of us are familiar with the fact that just because an organization brings technology on board and has now a capacity and capability, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to use it. it. Yeah, we were just having a conversation <laughs> offline. And indeed, I want to uh, introduce our thought today. Our topic today is going to be telemedicine education for healthcare professionals. And it's a great topic for Top Docs Radio because a lot of doctors are still not familiar with the tools of the trade that we use. So Let's kind of get into it. Um, American healthcare is transforming, and telemedicine is certainly going to be a critical part of going forward into the future. Um, however, it's gone, telemedicine's kind of gone from being a novelty in providing patient care to a booming industry. In fact, it's expected to be um, a multi billion dollar company in the next three to four years. So um, we have to get a lot of people on the bandwagon. Currently, the healthcare professionals that are graduating from medical school are what I'd call digital natives. So they kind of have gotten used to growing up with the technology and they will be our first into the field that can really apply the technology. But for systematically getting used to the tools, and as we know, we're going to talk about today, the tools change constantly, just like medicine changes, um, how we go about training healthcare professionals to use uh, telemedicine as it is today and into the future is kind of our topic. And I'm so excited about our guest today. Our guest is Anil Irfan. Welcome, Anil. Well, thank you for having me, Tanya and CW. Yes. And let me tell you a little bit about Anil. We met each other at um, one of the national telemedicine conferences in Phoenix, Arizona, um, back in June when it was very hot, wasn't it, Anil? Oh my God, 120 yes. degrees. And I'm in Florida and... Uh, <laughs> That was tough for me. <laughs> it was warm for all of us, too. Anyways, Anil is a contributing editor for the premier telehealth magazine based in New York City. Um, it is one of the few and widely distributed specific telehealth magazines in the United States. Um, he doesn't stop there, though. He's also the founder of the Telehealth Champions Network, which is an educational telehealth networking um, company and community that he's starting. He also has a telehealth consulting company um, where he does a variety of projects, but he likes to focus specifically on point-to-point -point telemed rollouts and deploying large remote patient monitoring systems nationally. Um, his goal has been to deploy sustainable telehealth programs with an approach that includes needs assessment, telemedicine education, and value-based models. So boy, that is a mouthful, but we are so thrilled to have you today. Welcome. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. And you did a great job with that. So I appreciate it. Very good. Well, we're going to actually start out talking about where are we in the medical community regarding educating 
healthcare providers in nursing, medicine, and the allied health professions about telemedicine. What are your thoughts on that, Anila? What are you seeing as far as where we are today with both the infrastructure and integrating telemedicine? That's something that really troubled me as I dwelled into this industry. There was really a a vendor-driven, technology-focused industry, and there wasn't any education. And I realized as I did some research, and I went to, I'm from Florida, and I went to several nursing schools and medical schools, and I realized that they weren't being taught anything about telemedicine or telehealth. It wasn't a part of their curriculum. And as they get into, as they started entering the workforce, they were at a disadvantage. So I realized that, and for me, in the business that I was in, and the awareness that needs to be done, as we know, in telemedicine, I realized that there's some physicians and some clinicians that may never get it. So the ones that we need to focus on are the ones in schools. And so to see that there wasn't any education pieces there, it was very troubling to me. And and it will come, but right now it's it's extremely lacking. And there's some programs across the country sparingly. Um, Jefferson has created a a fellowship program uh, for Philadelphia. And it's it's something that will continue to evolve. But at this present moment, the kids that are in school right now, they're in this unique place where telehealth is happening, but they're not understanding the tools or don't have their hands on the tools as of yet. I I agree. Sorry, go ahead. Some of the reasons for that that I've seen is there's still that stigma in the administrators that it's the future. It's happening right now in your communities and across the country. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of the trends that we saw back when we deployed electronic medical records. And I really appreciated your comments about it being vendor driven because people would show up at a trade show or a booth and kind of see a few little things on the screen and then they'd spend thousands or millions of dollars to buy it and the doctors couldn't use it. And they would be, they were so frustrated. I think it almost took us a step backwards because they um, resisted and uh, weren't comfortable with it at the beginning because they didn't get training on EMRs either. And now here we're seeing the same thing with other types of technology that maybe are just as complicated um, as we go forward. So this idea of resistance in the healthcare community is not new. I mean, physicians have been very conservative, um, kind mm-hmm. of lagging behind like finance industries and things like that. Um, do you see this trend kind of continuing or how do you expect this to kind of roll forward? And, and I agree. And I'm glad you made the point with the EMRs and EHRs. Unfortunately, it left a real bad taste in the clinician's mouth. Right, right? I agree. Um, weren't consulted when these rollouts came came out, and they were kind of stuffed down them with meaningful use and things like that. You see a lot of physicians now, they're, they're heads down in the computers, you know, and they're, it's costing them more time than it's helping them. So one of the things that um, is important to me in the telehealth space is, and, and you touch on this later in, with the AMA uh, and how the stance that they've taken, the American Medical Association, that all these digital tools that are rushing to the market, whether it's, whether it's an app or a telemedicine platform and telehealth tools, which I encourage everyone to look at at just tools. Yeah. We need to consult the physicians as we develop them, save them time, prove their worth, and then let the clinicians and the medical boards build curriculum around that. Because 
there is different nuances of practicing medicine virtually, whether you're a medical health professional or you're seeing a patient, uh, seeing a lesion as a dermatologist virtually. So there is nuances that will continue to evolve, but we need to include the clinicians in this process and as these rollouts continue. Yeah, so you alluded to the fact for the benefit of our listeners, um, you and I have talked offline about the American Medical Association coming out with a policy statement recommending that telemedicine training be integrated into medical schools as a core competency so they can actually have the tools to do work. Can you tell us a little bit more about your understanding of this new policy? And I think they may have a consortium of some of the medical schools. Yes. And I actually, uh, we just released this. Uh, I wrote a very in-depth editorial um, in issue number six of Telemedicine Magazine on the reluctant and history of the AMA uh, and telemedicine. So going back now, AMA, you know, they're, they're, they're very forward-thinking to a, to, a, to a degree, and they're really focused on the doctor-patient relationship, right? And so in the beginning, though they supported telemedicine, there were still little hesitations on that doctor-patient relationship and, and the sacrifice there. But their stance has evolved. It evolved to a, to a tune where, hey, these tools are valuable, we want to put reimbursement behind them, but more importantly, you need to. Uh, developers need to prove their worth. One and two, there needs to be. And what also came out of that recent update that you mentioned is also ethical guidelines. But what I was happy to see, as you alluded to, is education in the curriculums, because they realized that there is a lacking there, and this is a culture change for clinicians. And there needs to be more advocacy and more push forward for uh, education in their medical boards. Because, you know, medical training, as we know, is, is almost, you know, uh, military-like in training. So they're really set to their ways when they leave school. So incorporating these type of tools in their training is uh, AMA sees as a positive aspect to the new clinicians entering the workforce. Because they're going to be interacting with them, um, you know, going forward. And what's important also that they're starting to understand, guys, is we're talking about this as telemedicine, telehealth right now in 2016. Ten years from now, it's just going to be practicing medicine. Yeah, it'll just be another tool. It'll just be one more tool that we use. It's just that amazing part of history. And that's why I take a lot of pride in and I try to show through our telehealth champions network the, the amazing opportunity that we have in this age. We've seen so many things in front of our eyes come to age. Facebook, people interacting online, and our wave into society, the birth of the internet. And we're, we're getting there as a society. That's why this is something that telemedicine and these tools are something that you, you, you can bet on, because it's something that's going to continue to grow, because that's the movement that we're going towards. But what that creates as a clinician, as a nurse, as a health information technology student, as an entrepreneur, you have an opportunity right now. And I, I speak about this heavily, and I take pride in this. You have a chance to be a part of history. You have a chance to mold what our clinical future is going to look like with these tools, because that's what it's going to look like with, you know, these tools are going to be used. So I try to show that trait of opportunity um, to entrepreneurs, nursing students, physicians, the true opportunity uh, in telehealth that we have in the digital age of healthcare that's emerging. And I call it the triple M. It's, you know, you can make money because you're early, you're going to make history, and also you'll make a difference because these tools 
are so impactful with chronic disease, the rise of chronic disease and access to health care. Um, so it's really win, win, win <laughs> this industry and where we're going. It's an exciting time. Very good. Well, I'd like to go back to a point that you made because I think it's really important. Um, you mentioned the AMA's focus on the patient-provider relationship, and I want to talk a little bit about the importance of that in telemedicine. I know I'll tell mm-hmm. a personal story up here. We do, uh, when women's telehealth, long-distance um, maternal fetal specialty care um, to rural areas, and um, we've seen time and time again where, you know, I think people sometimes think telemedicine doesn't allow for a similar patient-doctor relationship, um, but I know a story where we had a lady who um, asked everyone in the room during her telemedicine encounter to be gone, including the coordinator and the nurse in the room with the patient. And this was a patient who was in a doctor's office, had a telehealth nurse with her, a remote specialist on our end. And the doctor said, absolutely, we'll clear the room. There's something you want to say to me. And the patient uh, shared that she had thought she had been exposed to HIV. It was really astounding to us. The story, the reason I bring it up is this is a patient who had a one-on-one personal in-person relationship at that moment with her obstetrician in their office with the nurse who had hands-on with the patient. But when the specialist came in, that was the person on the camera that they chose to disclose that to. So I think it's a really good story that points out a telemedicine encounter does not mean that you don't have a relationship. I think also telemedicine offering remote tools, um, there would be no doctor-patient relationship because a lot of the specialists wouldn't even be in that community. Mm -hmm. And so it does provide, maybe not ideally, we can't reach through the screen and touch the patients, but we certainly can build rapport um, through the camera, through conversations, and through the use of virtual tools that we have. So I think you brought up a really great point about the importance of telemedicine as a tool and its capability of still extending the same or just as good of a doctor-patient relationship remotely as well as in person. What do you think, CW? I'm interested to, to about that in, in that I'm wondering if the social media and the smart devices that we use now, our phones, we photograph everything, we video everything, we interact and FaceTime, for example, and other Skype and things like that. So I'm wondering if those mediums being out there for everyday use are not making making that flow for that type of interaction. Yeah, but still, I think, you know, I think uh, Anil, one of his points is that, you know, the AMA recently came out with a policy statement regarding telemedicine education, but their focus uh, certainly has to remain on the doctor-patient relationship, but maybe you know, a little bit lagging behind. We're talking about that. Let me move on to the next thought, Anil. I'm interested in your thoughts about education as we move into a physician and nursing shortage over the next couple of years. So in my state, Georgia, uh, we have healthcare inside of Atlanta and then kind of outside of Atlanta with only a few major cities as big of Atlanta. So we have vast areas where we have we have some counties here that have no primary care. We have something like 36 counties that have no labor and delivery. Patients are driving over an hour. And so trying to get all physicians comfortable with using telemedicine as a tool, how important do you think that is, that education going into a physician and nursing shortage? Uh, I mean, great points. And 
listen, let's talk about, you know, physician shortages and clinician shortages is, is one. And I couple that to another thing. But let's talk about the real the other drivers as well. So we, so you lay out all the drivers of, of the rise of telehealth, chronic disease, aging population, right? But now you're going to couple a physician shortage, nursing shortage across the country. And now you couple it with more and more people with insurance now as well, right? With Obamacare, there's a lot more people with insurance coverage. So look at that maldistribution and balance. <laughs> a shortage in physicians and clinicians, more people with uh, insurance. How do you balance that? Yeah, they're going to have to spread themselves out and use exactly. tools to spread themselves out. Exactly. So telemedicine, telehealth are tools, just like you said, for a clinician to be in one place, you know, basically uh, three places at one time. And, you know, you to dig in a little bit deeper, the shortage in mental health and behavioral health in the country and the need for it is glaring. Um, so we'll, we're, we're seeing a lot of rise in telepsych. We'll, we'll see a lot of that. But the specific, specific shortage, not even clinicians across the board, but behavioral health specifically, is glaring. So education on that is, is still... This across the board is raising awareness, speaking with clinicians, having them understand what their opinions are with telehealth. Have them in the conversation. When you develop a telehealth program, and things that we show in our in our consulting work is you have to have buy-in from the top bottom, top to the bottom, from your CEO to your clinicians to your administrators, and educating them in the process of developing a telemedicine program and the culture and crawling before you're walking. Understanding your laws is critical, but I mean, it, the shortages in getting back to that, I think I described it, you know, it's, it's, I, it's not even optional, I believe. I think it's going to be a necessity uh, that we utilize telemedicine because of you couple, the formula is just bad. I mean, you couple the physician shortages with aging populations and rise uh, rise of chronic disease, more people with insurance, accountable care. I mean, I can go on and on here, but the needs, it's not, it's not going to be an optional need uh, for telehealth and telemedicine and these digital tools. It's going to be a necessity to educate and start um, developing and implementing these type of tools. That's why I'm worried, honestly. That's why I'm worried because we're missing a chance. With the kids that are in school now, a generation that, as you mentioned, is tech-savvy enough to utilize it, we're missing a chance right now to educate them. We truly are. And that's what, what is a pain point for me, and that's what I'm focused on, because we're missing a chance. Yeah, it's going to come five, ten years down the road, but we need to do it now, because the need is now, and we need to have more tech-savvy, not tech-savvy, but telehealth-savvy clinicians in the workforce going into the workforce right now. And that's not happening, Tanya and CW. I know this shortage is putting some pressure on states to work together to try to open up the pores a little bit on the state lines with regards to licensure so physicians can move around and, and can take advantage of things like uh, physician staffing, locum tenens, uh, and travel and be able to move the workforce around a little bit. And Historically, that's been very challenging from state to state. They each have different processes and paperwork and so forth. I'm curious from both of you as experts around this particular model of delivery. I know it's yet another facet that's putting some pressure on 
licensing because it comes into play in the telemedicine delivery model as well. Yeah, because the people that need the care are in areas where um, there are no providers a lot of times. And so, um, and there's no reason to have a provider there. There's not really the volume that warrants it. So um, it has been a barrier in the past. And from my opinion, it has gotten better. There is a consortium of now, I think, about 13 or 14 states. It does not, um, there is no national telemedicine medical license, though. Mm. You have to get licensed in each right. state where the patient is, not where the and provider that can take is. Months. It On my side, as a provider, the shortest we've gotten a license is 90 days. The longest yeah. is two years. Yeah. And in states that, uh, that was a state that had a horrible rural care problem. Um, so you'd think they would really do it. But the consortium that I'm talking about does move through an expedited licensing process, but it doesn't bypass anything. Mm-hmm. Anil, what's your opinion on that? And, and uh, you, you touched on it. Um, and to, to mix, and I'm glad you clarified as well. It's it, there is a th- about 14 state consortium that a compact, as they call it, mm-hmm. uh, move forward and has been proactive to get you know get expedited licensure. It's not your license and you get you and you want to do telemedicine. You can do telemedicine in all those 14. It's expedited. So that's a real misconception. But before even that, we still need to fight on a state level provider scope, uh, providers that are allowed to practice and get reimbursed for telemedicine. In some states, it's only physicians in some states. Others, you know, we need to expand it to everyone, occupational therapists, nurses. So we need to get that in order as well before we talk about licensing. That's a good point. It's not just the physician licensing. It's all licensing boards. Exactly. That's some of the things we're fighting here in Florida, um, you know, just expanding the provider scope. I mean, we're fighting a lot of things in Florida, but on the telehealth (laughs) case. You are fighting Uh, a lot down there. Yeah, but you know, listen, we're pro. We we have gotten some things, and we've gotten some wins here in Florida. So um, we personally are Florida Telehealth Work Group with the Telehealth Resource Center that I'm very active with. Uh, we just helped pass some legislation just recently um, that allows some surveying across the state for telehealth, and hopefully a payment statute next uh, next issue. But that, those have been the barriers, right, Tanya? Right. Yeah. Is reimbursement the question of our cross state licensure? Um, the provider scope, the doctor-patient relationship, going back to that, because, you know, Texas had a big fight, and I think they're still fighting Teladoc mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, I'd agree. You know, the medical, there is that doctor-patient relationship. Is Some states are, are saying, hey, you need to have a doctor-patient in-person relationship before you can utilize telemedicine, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's a little outdated. Yeah. <laughs> we need the care where the care need, it needs to be delivered, I think, uh, however that happens, I, I think. Yeah. Outdated. I would say a lot of our Medicare reimbursement uh, verbiage on telehealth is extremely outdated. When you talk about originating sites and you talk about um, only rural areas, that's extremely outdated, right? We need this in the urban areas. We need this in originating. It just it, it puts a lot of red tape where it's not needed. Yeah. So, hey, a lot of regulatory battles. I, I, I hate that we, 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 we dig on that a little bit too much in a lot of our conferences. Uh, we need to get back to the education. But those are the fights that we're finding. And honestly, with the necessity that we need to talk about, uh, that we're talking about, and that those, those drivers we talked about, those things are going to have to sort themselves out. Right. I'd like <laughs> to know? move so, on. Yeah, I'd like to move on to actually um, some of the education models that we're seeing. So we've talked okay. about some of the barriers, but moving forward into some of the ways to rectify the situation. 
Um, I've been reading about some medical schools that are including telemedicine into their um, medical uh, degree programs, both in the early clinical rotations, which are very early science years, and then later in the practice years. What are you seeing and hearing in the field about how it's being integrated from day one in medical school? Agreed. I've seen, uh, I have seen, like you said, like I mentioned with Jefferson um, on the fellowship programs and some of this early science and even after graduate programs where they're getting some live work. Ideally, Tanya CW, where I would like to see this go, and this is a trend across medical education anyway, is in simulation labs, creating use cases via telemedicine, um, you know, with, infused with telemedicine. We're seeing excellent work across the country with simulation labs and nursing and even medical students. So it's being used a lot more. And I would like to see it in um, utilized more with uh, increasingly with telemedicine. So um, on the, like I said, with the curriculum wise, Tanya, unfortunately, like I said, especially in the state of Florida, I haven't seen much in actual real deal curriculum. The education that I've seen, um, has come from the telehealth resource centers the, that are across the country, which are certification courses on presenting patients, clinical presenting, uh, telehealth coordinator courses, telehealth liaison courses. Um, I've seen some telestroke courses. And as you had mentioned, you're working on some, on some things with women's telehealth. So a lot of the education and curriculum I have seen on the resource center side. And the ATA has some things that they're working on as well. But the industry and in university-specific stuff, um, I haven't seen it widespread up. But I think where it's going to ideally go is the simulation lab. And I like virtual reality uh, being used in the next five years uh, in that aspect as well. Yeah, virtuality would be a great uh, training for patients as well. We not only have the provider side of the equation, but a lot of time we're teaching patients, especially with chronic care diseases, how to use glucometers, how to use... Holter monitors mm-hmm. um, in the home. So uh, we've been talking pretty much about doctor to patient encounters as a piece of telemedicine. However, a whole different animal within telemedicine is remote patient monitoring. And um, I, I love your point about virtual reality use for both both sides of the table there for the patient and the provider side. I think that's a great idea. I've also read about some uh, medical schools using digital call rotations where students have supervised e-encounters and they learn virtual exam skills and they have um, they use some of the tools. Have you seen or, or heard of any of this going on? I've seen, you know, I've seen some second opinion um, because there's such a tremendous opportunity. One aspect of telehealth, if you look, if you look at the definition of telehealth, it's the delivery of healthcare services in three aspects administrative, which are doing administrative meetings from one site to another, educational, right? And number three, which we use interchangeably sometimes, which is the clinical subset called telemedicine. So one of the pillars of telehealth is education, you know? So because you have the opportunity to do grand rounds and continued medical education. So one of the best practices that we, we like to include in our program development, and everyone should include, is that continuing education, finding opportunities where you can plug in virtual cardiology expertise, right, and be able to offer that to your clinicians um, and, and others. So 
I would like to see a lot more of that um, digital calls and basically tapping into other resources on a grand round virtual education uh, type of premise. Um, and I have seen it done, and it is a part of a lot of successful you know, programs around the country where they have, not only do they use their telehealth network for remote monitoring and virtual visits, but they use it to access educational expertise from academic uh, centers around the country. Yeah, I know. A good point on that is um, a couple of years ago here in Atlanta, we had a group of 12 Russian physicians come to be trained um, with women's telehealth on how we use telemedicine. And I went around Mm -hmm. the table. We had interpreters. I went around the table. I said, oh, they said, oh, Tanya, we 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 have our own telemedicine. We've used it for years. And I said, well, what do you use it for? And they said, we use it because we have the state run clinics in Russia. And then we Mm -hmm. have like hub and spoke out to the rural clinics. And we only use telemedicine to train our remote doctors. I said, what about the patients? They said, we don't use it with patients. We only use it for education. So there's a whole example of they in Russia actually use it for provider training with uh, tools and everything for the remote areas as opposed to their main hubs, you know, that they use there. So I hear your point about education can't be left out for sure. It's, it's one of the main important pillars, and I truly see it as the next level of clinical rotations uh, with this, you know, telehealth being embedded in it and uh, utilizing these tools to, to uh, access expertise wherever you need it, right? Wherever yeah. you need it from. I know one of and the... International, yeah, international. Sorry to cut you off there. Um, international, you're, I'm glad you mentioned that. A lot of movement there, uh, international, not only on a program-wise, like a second opinion-wise, but education-wise, and them tapping into our resources and vice versa. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, I think the other shift that we've seen is, you know, five, five, six, seven years ago in telemedicine, we thought of telemedicine as kind of like a, a, a hepped-up HIPAA-compliant Skype-type session. Um, mm-hmm. Now we actually have to run virtual exams. We have to, we have Bluetooth stethoscopes. We have to upload images and running a virtual encounter. There's an art to that, you know, and uh, so you don't keep efficient. You got people all over the country waiting to dial into you. Um, you have a lot of moving parts to manage. So I think the fact that we have new tools and these providers learning to use the tools and learning not only the tool use, but how to manage the encounter efficiently and get the data in remotely, evaluate the data on the provider side, and then quickly formulate a plan remotely is really, that's that's another piece to the education, not just the actual hardware, but the thinking behind how, how a telemedicine encounter is maybe a little bit different than um, an in-person encounter. Agreed. And and there are nuances. As you know, I learned this. I have a great partner from the Telemental Health Institute, uh, a lady by the name of Dr. Marlene Mayhew, with 22 years in telepsychiatry, um, telepsychology. I'm sorry, uh, experience. And she brought up a great point. She has certification courses on specifically telemental health and the nuances of practicing mental health virtually. And you know, one point she brought up is: listen, you're virtually seeing a patient in their home, right? And what, you know, there's some things and tips and tricks that you can use where you can assess their background and see if there's a, there's a, there's a hygiene issue that may trigger, that may be a sign of something. Also, she said, Hey, 
what's your emergency plan? You know, usually you're used to doing uh, visits in a clinical setting. So if there's other nurses there, there's a plan there. But if you're talking to a patient uh, and they're, they're saying, listen, you know, they're suicidal and they flip the laptop on you, what's your plan? Yeah, good point. Right? Yeah, good point. It is those nuances. I know for us, too, our new configurations, um, because we need to sometimes capture, as you mentioned, the background or not just the patient's face on camera. Um, we're using mm-hmm. zoom in out very refined Panasonic cameras, even on laptops, specially configured so we can see the husband, the room, the kids, the, you know, whatever in the background. So, um, yeah, the nuances of that education, I think, are just kind of aside from how do you turn on the telemedicine card <laughs> or plug in the stethoscope, the nuances of what other data can you gather if you pay attention? Oh, that's a great point on the on the telemental health. I think that's great. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit too about um, a whole nother part of this landscape is patients using devices in their homes. Like we've talked already in the show about Holter monitors, glucometers, Bluetooth stethoscopes, there's wireless scales, um, wireless devices, and that kind of plugs into the remote monitoring. And how do you see education as a component and how, what are you seeing in the field? We've talked about kind of two sides of the education. One is the provider side and the other yeah. is the patient side. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to frame this in a way, um, which is we got to understand first what the healthcare landscape and payment landscape is going towards, value-based models. We have to increase positive outcomes in the patients. Even a piece of that is patient engagement, right? And so clinicians have to use these different tools to achieve those. And what's what's kind of isn't relayed a lot of times is the different types of telehealth that are out there, right? So there's synchronous, right, which is the just a simple audio video communication and you can integrate medical devices and that's a consult that you do. There's asynchronous, which is commonly referred to as store and forward, used for many years in teleradiology and also now dermatology, where you're capturing a secure image and you're forwarding it to a clinician for review. Another aspect, and, and I personally think this is going to be the most sustainable model of telehealth. It's going to be the, it is already, it's going to be very reimbursable. I did, a issue, I did an article on the Connect for Health Act that we all should keep an eye on. That's getting a lot of bipartisan support and is in the House right now. Is, uh, is remote patient monitoring, as I mentioned which is where you use these tools, like you mentioned, into the home and you're engaging them, especially for those chronic disease ailments, right? So the education that that you can provide, not only while you're um, collecting those vitals and managing the disease remotely, but now we're seeing where you're embedding diabetic education surveys onto those monitoring devices in the home. And I, if you mind, if you don't mind, I'll give you a quick story on that where it hit home for me, right? My dad is my dad gets VA benefits. He uh, is VA vet, obviously. Twenty year smoker, got diagnosed with diabetes just I would say about a year ago. So when he got that, he goes to the Miami VA center. Uh, when he got diagnosed, we right got to always say, hey, he's not going to manage this disease. He's not going to really stay on top of it. And of course, his levels were very erratic. So he returns to the VA. The nurse calls him in. They go, listen. And as you, as you, as you guys know, the, the VA is the largest telehealth rollout in the world, right? 
And they say, you know what? Your levels are erratic. Let's, let's put you on a remote patient monitoring program. Automatically, he called me excited. He's like, Neil, they put me on your telehealth thingamajig. <laughs> and I automatically saw a, a, a change. Every morning, it wakes him up. It says, good morning. Time to check your vitals. It gives him tips on diet, exercise. Gives him goals to hit. And let me tell you, almost eight months later, he's basically diabetic-free. He's very positive outcomes. And guys, we get a win-win there because he praises the VA, so you get patient satisfaction. We keep the patient who's a, who could be a frequent flyer out of the hospital, so we cut costs and we increase engagement. That's what we want, and that's the way we use these tools. So um, I think you've got to make them very easy for the patients, though. You have to embed education if you're, doing, if you're rolling out that type of program. Um, embed education into it uh, because it's going to do nothing but help them. And because they're in that environment where they're in home and video tutorials on how to, you know, uh, collect insulin, things like that, it's very impactful. So remote patient monitoring, I'm a big advocate, obviously, and I think I see it as the most sustainable model of telehealth with the combination of the other ones, but the most sustainable model of telehealth going forward and more and most impactful as well. Mm-hmm. Well, it's hard to believe we're about at the end of our time. It always flies by. It sounds like in summary, um, I've heard you say we're starting to move the needle a little bit in formal medical education programs. We have a long way to go. Currently, there are a lot of resources available in our national regional telehealth centers um, for lots of people to go there and get the education that they need as a starting point and that we need to really embed education as part of all that we do when we roll out these toy, these, these tools and we develop them up, up front. Is that a fair statement? I, I agree. It should be one of our, one of, uh, our, you know, our kind of phrases that we use and, uh, are, is invest in the knowledge before the technology. We get a lot of shiny new toy syndrome in this industry. So it's very important to invest in learning, not about the toys, about telehealth. So that, that you know, you, you hit it right on the head there. So, Tanya, thank you. Okay. Any final thoughts you have, Neil, on telemedicine education or trends that you're excited about before we sign off? Um, I like that the AMA has advocated um, telehealth education and curriculums, as we mentioned. Um, I would say this, that... You have to be proactive as you're a nursing student or if you're an entrepreneur, if you're in college right now, and even administrators and universities um, listening to this. Be proactive, engage telehealth, invest it into your your curriculums, um, and look for the opportunity. So one of the things that we say and what we're trying to create with the Telehealth Champions Network is a community where we can share resources uh, build CME courses and, and have access to those. Get people talking about telemedicine, building champions in our community who will lead efforts and, and, and really get excited about telemedicine and telehealth in their space. So uh, I would encourage anyone that wants more information about the network. We're very excited about it. Me and my partner, we're going to be doing a lot of live streams on our Facebook page, which is Telehealth Champions Network. Um, the website for our, our company is IMST, IMST, telehealth.com. 
I'm very active. My name is Anil Irfan. If you want to look it up, I'm very active on Twitter, LinkedIn. So a lot of different channels you can reach me at. Um, but I say, hey, take the first step, start learning about telehealth, and see the difference that you can make. Uh, the triple M, as we call it, making money, uh, making a difference, and making history in our communities. It's an exciting time. So I encourage you to get involved. And let me show you the way. Sounds great. Well, Anil, you've been wonderful, and we so appreciate you being our guest today. Also, just like to remind our listeners that Anil contributes to Telemedicine Magazine. It's a groundbreaking magazine based in New York City, published six times a year, and you can get additional information there. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you want to check them out, they're also on the web at telemedmag.com. If you are somebody that either is pregnant or you know somebody who is, and maybe they don't have easy access to uh, a maternal fetal specialist, make sure you go to womenstelehealth.com and you can learn more about the telemedicine platform that Tanya and her team are able to use to deliver high quality maternal fetal uh, specialist care uh, around the Southeast and and, uh, different parts of the country as well. So check them out. And if you've not done so already, go to the upper left-hand corner of the show page. You'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you to the Top Docs Radio Show podcast on iTunes where you can subscribe to us. And that way, each week when the new episode comes out, it's downloaded straight to your device, ready for you to listen to when it's convenient for you. And we hope you turn around and share this information. Click share on LinkedIn, put it out on Facebook. You might just be putting your information in the hands of somebody that you care about that makes a big difference in their life. So we'll say thanks in advance to all the folks that did that. And Anil, thanks for taking some time to jump on with us. And of course, Tanya, always great to have you in the studio. Yeah, I appreciate it. Everybody have a good afternoon. Thanks, Anil. We'll see you in a few days. 